Hey, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, and we're going to get there. I promise. I just have a little bit longer of an introduction than normal, okay? So hang on. We're going to get to the Scripture. But Luke chapter 11, I want you to rewind with me, if you would. Let's go back about 2,000 years. We're going to be at a time when Jesus was with his disciples, and they began to ask him questions. And I'm certain Jesus could sense the desire behind this particular question that his disciples asked. You know, he told them oftentimes, or it was written oftentimes, that Jesus knew what they were thinking because he could see into their hearts. I don't know if I'd want that ability to see into somebody's heart. You ever thought about that? I mean, Superman has x-ray vision and all these different superheroes have different superpowers. But I never really thought I, you know, the more that I think about it, I don't know that I'd want that. I'm glad Jesus had it. He could handle it, right? He can be just and everything and all that good with that. But there are sometimes when you know when you look at a person and if you saw what was in their heart, mm, this might be a little bit difficult, right? But Jesus knew what they were thinking and they knew why they were following him and he knew that they wanted to be a part of what he was doing. They'd heard stories all their lives about the Messiah who was going to come and be the redeemer of Israel, right? He was going to collect them up. He was going to save them from this Roman government, this oppression. He would lead them. He would bring in a new movement of God. He would set them free. And when Jesus arrived, they follow him because, well, you know, they kind of thought he was the one. They wanted a front row seat. I mean, if you and I were there, wouldn't you and I? I mean, well, I'd want a front row seat to this too. So the former fisherman, Peter, he never forgot the night when Jesus shows up at his fishing business after a long night of fishing. And he says, hey, push out your boats and give it one more shot. Come on, Peter, drop your nets on the other side. Now, any good fisherman knows any good fisherman knows that if you've been fishing all night long and you've done probably going back out there and dropping the nets on the other side of the boat is not going to happen. But they do it and they catch the biggest catch they'd ever seen. And so Peter drops his nets and becomes a fisher of men, a fisher of people. Ma uh, Matthew, the tax collector, sitting at his tax, tax booth. Jesus comes to town, heals the town paraplegic. And you see that kind of thing happen. And it's a little hard to dismiss. It's a little hard to ignore. Or what about Nathaniel? You know, we don't hear a lot about Nathaniel. You know, he's this kid sitting under a tree. And his friend says, come see this guy. Come check him out. I'm pretty sure he's the one. I have, an, I have a suspicion he's the one. I'm pretty sure. Come. And then Jesus tells him, while you were sitting under that tree, I know what you were saying and thinking. Jesus was nowhere near the tree. They're powerful displays. They required a supernatural ability. And you know what? As I look at it and examine it, I would probably find myself in the same place of I want to see who this Jesus guy is. All of the disciples who followed Jesus accepted his invitation because in some way, shape, or fashion, he overwhelmed them. For some of them, it was because he simply saw them. Now, I like movies. 
I don't know if y'all know that about me. I like watching movies. I love watching all sorts of different movies. Uh, one of my favorite movies is Avatar, just because of the cool computer graphics in it. I mean, it's just really cool that way. But there's this saying among the, the people of, of Avatar, I see you, which really means as I'm looking at you, hey, not only do I notice that you're physically there, but I, I see you as a human being and see you as a person and see you for who you are. And for some of the disciples, that's what Jesus did. He said, I see you. I acknowledge you. Come be part of this. And he overwhelmed them with that. They were longing for a movement when Jesus arrived. And not only did they take note of him, but crowds followed him because they wanted to be part of it. They wanted to, to experience God in such a way that would transform their world. Which makes me think for a minute, is there anybody here today who would love to have a fresh perspective on life? Wouldn't it be nice to have a fresh perspective? Or anyone here wanting to have the power to deal with all the things that life is throwing at me? Or maybe a new experience to a new movement of God in your heart? I mean, can't you just relate to the disciples? They were following and watching Jesus perform miracles, hearing him deliver life-changing teachings. They had a front-row seat watching Jesus providing life-changing encounters with their families, their neighbors, and their friends. And they wanted to know more. They wanted in. They wanted the keys. They wanted to go and be able to understand the secrets that led to life-changing things. And as they watched Jesus, they noticed what he did. Jesus would pray to the Father with an intimacy that they had never seen before. They had heard the Pharisees praying on the street corners, being loud and obnoxious sometimes. But when Jesus prayed, they sensed something was different. Jesus had an electrifying, vibrant prayer life and it produced powerful results and that leads us back to where we started this morning with a request that reveals the heart of the one who asks it so let's read together luke chapter 11 starting in verse 1 one day jesus was praying in a certain place when he finished one of his disciples said to him lord teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. 
The door for everyone who asks receive, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You know, when you're putting together something, and I know most dads can relate to this, a piece of furniture, a child's toy, a bike. I mean, how many of us have been there on Christmas Eve doing that? Day before a birthday, putting together a bicycle out in the garage, you know? Maybe it's a Lego set, I don't know. The first step is always the most important step. Because the first step determines how the rest of the project is going to look. If you get the first step wrong, what happens? Yeah, the project is not going to turn out right. Now, I know that we have many woodworkers here in this church that can do wonderful things with wood. That is not in my wheelhouse of talents, nor could I make it a skill. I was in uh, eighth grade, and Mr. Baugh was my, um, was my woodshop teacher. And you know, you always have to take those vocational classes in junior high and senior high. They always make you do that. When you got to high school, it was a lot more fun. I got to use stuff like AutoCAD and do some other things. But I, for the life of me, nearly flunked woodshop. And I don't know how you do that, except I would make perfect pieces. I could cut them out. I could plane them down, I could sand them, I could finish the pieces perfectly. And my teacher, Mr. Baugh, he'd give me an A every single time. But when I'd go to put the project together, something happened. Maybe it was something didn't happen, I don't know. But nine times out of 10, my projects looked a little like Picasso had put them together. I mean, seriously, we were making these little carry trays to take home for Mother's Day for our mother, and they could put their makeup brushes in them, and they looked like, you know, they had a handle in the middle, and they had different things. And the, the, the shop teacher even had me make his parts for him to prove his point. So I made a set for me, and I made a set for him, and they were perfect. And Mr. Baugh's little example project was perfect. And mine had so many serious issues to it. It was horrible looking. I couldn't do it for nothing. That first step is always the most important step. I don't know. Maybe I didn't get the first step right when I was putting things together. In the same way, our first step of prayer is extremely important because it determines how the rest of our praying is going to look. When we look at Jesus' example to the disciples, the first thing that he does is give worship to God. This hallowed be your name, it changes what we ask for. It feels like we need to confess because we're saying, holy is your name. And it's not only God, it's his name. We start out reminding ourselves who we're talking to and that not just is God holy, but even his name is holy. We remind ourselves how significant that is and how significant the Father is. And that shows us this one thing that I want you to write this down if you can. Honoring God, not ourselves, should be the guiding focus of our prayer. 
We pray for many, many things. We pray for things, for people to be healed. We pray for good things to happen. We pray for God to bring workers for the, for the harvest is plentiful. We pray and we ask. But the foundation of our prayer should honor God. That next section of prayer petitions uh, God to make our world a reflection of heaven. When we look at the world, we become so discouraged by what we see. We believe nothing good can be done. We're left to sit back and wait for the return of Christ. How many feel like that after the last two years? Hello, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of praying, Jesus, just come so this pandemic thing would be over. Huh. The thing of it is, is Jesus wants to renew the world through us, right? N.T. Wright says, Jesus is coming, plant a tree. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? But that's because when we do that, when we plant something new, we, we acknowledge that we have not given up hope on this world. And so when we pray, we ask God to change our world so that it better reflects the perfect love and security of heaven. Lord, on earth as it is in heaven, may your spirit be unleashed around us. Asking God to change our world shows that we have not given up hope. What makes up the majority of what we're praying after worshiping God and praying for others, and we get to the part of the prayer where we pray for ourselves, and can I say this? Asking God to do something for you and I, for ourselves, is not wrong. But it shouldn't be the bulk of our prayer. It shouldn't be the first thing we think about. We shouldn't be consumed by our own desires. Jesus talked about daily bread, in, uh, emphasizing the constant daily reliance on him to trust God for what we need for today. And he didn't say anything about tomorrow or next week. He said today. But you know what? A few months ago, we did this thing called Take Care. We did a whole sermon series on what it meant to care for yourself. Because too often, we think if we're taking care of ourselves, we're being selfish, and that's not the same thing. When we're selfish, when we're selfish, it means we're putting our priorities above God's priorities. We're consumed by our own desires. When we're taking care of ourselves, it is getting ourselves prepared and ready for what ministry we have to do tomorrow. Think about it like this. We all have jobs. Most of us have jobs. At some point in time, most of us have worked jobs. Some of you might be retired. But if you didn't sleep the night before, how did you do at your job the next day? Wasn't very good, was it? It's kind of hard to get the normal things done, the regular things done. When we don't sleep the night, when we don't take care of ourselves, how can we expect to disciple others? You see, we shouldn't be ashamed of asking God to provide for our own needs. 
And I don't know if you noticed this, but this idea of daily bread and daily physical sustenance was also connected to confession and forgiveness. It's reminding us that we do not live by physical food alone, but we need forgiveness and deliverance from temptation. And we need to experience forgiveness and are fitted, are prepared to forgive others so they experience forgiveness as well. We lose track of God's grace. Temptation comes in. Evil creeps in. So it's God's forgiveness that should so consume our hearts. It allows us to be willing to forgive others. You know what I'm talking about. We've all experienced it. That one deep hurt. That pain that goes so deep and so far and so hard that we just can't let go of it. And too many times in the church we say, oh, just forgive and forget. That's what God does. Just, just do that. Charlie and I were talking this morning, and there's a commercial on TV that we both like. It has to do with um, people suffering from depression. And one of the commercials that I saw, and Charlie said the other ones are very similar to it, is this young man sitting there, and it's all the advice people give somebody who's suffering from depression. And at the end, this, it really doesn't help. Saying those things really doesn't help. When we need to forgive somebody, to tell someone else to forgive and forget, eh, that doesn't really help. Because forgiveness is a process. In fact, I could preach a whole other, probably, sermon series on simply just forgiveness. Because it is so much more than just forgetting and boil it down into, into like a nutshell, forgiveness is giving up our right to get even. When someone sins against us, there is a spiritual law in play. You know, you probably heard that idea of, um, I'm owed a pound of flesh, right? I love the, the C.S. Lewis, the Narnia books, and in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the young boy, Edmund, betrays his whole entire family. The white witch rolls into Aslan's camp and demands her pound of flesh. Aslan says, you'll get your pound of flesh. He gives himself up, right? We know the story. There's this spiritual law when someone sins against me that I've got to forgive them, but the only way that I forgive them is that I give up my right to get even and I have to give that to God. Because that pound of flesh that is owed to me, I really have no right to. You, you may have talked about or heard about people carrying a lot of baggage around with them. That's because they're carrying all these pounds of flesh with them. It's called unforgiveness. And when we forgive and we give that up to God and we, we let him have that and take care of it and let God get even with them however God is going to get even with them for whatever purpose and reason that they sinned against us, it doesn't really benefit the person who sinned against me. It benefits me. And so when Jesus says that we would pray to forgive us our sins as we forgive others, we've really got to look at that and say, are we forgiving 
And we really need to acknowledge that none of us can actually forgive except that the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us helps us, directs us, guides us into doing that. It's not on our own strength. But God's forgiveness should so consume our hearts that we're willing to forgive others. And all of this we find through connection to God in prayer. Jesus prayed often. Movements that matter are born in the heart through an encounter with God, and we only find an encounter with God in humble submission through regular prayer. And this is what we're talking about, this half-million mobilization. We're praying our way to Pentecost with Nazarenes all over the USA and Canada. So I have something for you to do this week. I got homework. Bet you, bet you some of you guys were going, huh? Dan's giving out homework in church? I'm giving you homework. I want you to find somebody, one person, that you can call, that you can either sit next to, that you can be with in some way, shape, or fashion with every day and pray the prayer that Jesus prayed. How long does it take us to say the Lord's Prayer? If it's 30 seconds, I think that might even be a little too long, right? Last week, I begged you to find somewhere to pray for five minutes a day. Now I'm begging you, pick up the phone, FaceTime, instant messenger video chat, show up and sit down and have a cup of coffee with somebody and pray Together, using the prayer that Jesus taught us. Spend time seeking the heart of God. Follow the daily prayer guide. You know that prayer guide that's out there if you can't get to it? Uh, it's very simple. Go to www.usacanadaregion.org slash pray. We've had it up on the screen, I think, on the weeks past. If not, call me, text me, do whatever. I'll get it to you. You can download it. I'm not kidding you. It would take two minutes to read and pray that prayer. You see, we as Nazarenes, we are optimistic theologians. Amen. Do you know that? That's different about us. Most churches in Christianity are going, well, it's just going to get more worse and worse and worse till it's over. But you know what? We crazy Nazarenes believe that as long as God's people are here on earth, that he has the ability to work in them and through them and make changes in the world around them. But it's not going to happen if we don't find our place on our knees. Whether we kneel in our hearts, whether we kneel at an altar, whether we sit in a chair, it is not going to change if we don't seek God. Because as we seek him, he reveals to us his presence. He gives us our provision. He forgives us and protects us from our enemies. And all of that happens simply because of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much 
Lord, there is so many things that we can thank you for. Father, we are truly blessed. Lord God, we come to you today and we ask for your forgiveness. Because we don't get it right all the time. And Father, we need your help and your Holy Spirit to do that. And so, Father, today, would you please send your Holy Spirit to do that deeper work in us? Remind us to pray. Help us to remind each other to pray. Lord God, help us to come together that we would do what you need done in your kingdom. But, Father God, we're not going to know what that is except that we pray and we ask. So, Father, we acknowledge that there are times that we try to do this thing on our own. We acknowledge that there are times that we just don't do anything at all because we're discouraged. Lord God, it is easy to be discouraged in the world that we live in. But Father God, remind us, Holy Spirit, remind us that we are not citizens of this world, but we are citizens of heaven. And being citizens of the kingdom of God means that we are saved from death and hell and the grave and sin and all of that stuff. But we are also saved to work in your kingdom. Lord God, remind us to pray. Holy Spirit, remind us to pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for all that you've done. And we pray this in, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord and Savior, the Messiah of the world. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. And we do that by the power of your Holy Spirit living in us and through us. Amen.